and welcome to this week's episode of the Full Course Show Jumping Podcast. I'm Will Fletcher, and as always, I'm joined by Sam Gerard May. And this week, we've got two fantastic guests, Swedish Olympian Peder Fredriksson and Lizzie Bunn, the show director from Hickstead, who, of course, are celebrating their 60th birthday this year. Don't forget to check out our social media as well and look out for the competition with JP Equestrian Pro, giving one lucky listener the opportunity to win a show jump filler. Our guest this week is a man that's won six championship medals in his career, including European gold in 2017. Thank you so much to Sweden's Peder Fredriksson for joining us on this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Peder. It's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, someone of your stature from from Europe and obviously you're from Sweden and we're just wondering how has Sweden been coping with the virus are there any shows unlike there are in Britain yeah so what's going on there it's been really quiet for a long time well, first of all it's also really nice to to meet you guys and Thank uh, you. now it's been uh, it's been really quiet here first when it came we were all hoping that it would be uh, you know, fairly short break and things would things would start going again after a while. Uh, but then they cancelled the Olympics and you know one thing that another. And now, you know, we've been quiet for quite some time and we don't really know when it's we're going to start again. There's some small shows starting now slowly, but like the real sport, we have no idea when it's going to pick up again. So you've mentioned briefly there that obviously that you've been home for quite some time. But what have you been doing since you've been at home? Well, the days are busy anyway. Um, you know, when you have horses, there's always things to do. And now, um, um, now because um, we're not as many people working as we used to be, I have helped a bit more or around the farms, you know, uh, cleaning out things and painting things. And now I'm doing... Um, you know, just fixing things around the farm and riding a little bit and mainly training the young horses and uh, trying to find new interesting horses for the future. Uh, that's great. And But what we're going to do, and, and we like to do on our podcast, is we look at the career of the riders that have come on. And it's fair to say, over the last few years especially, you have had incredible success in championships. Can you talk us, take us back to... 2016, where you won the individual silver medal at the Rio Olympics. Oh, God, that's such a long time ago. I can hardly <laughs> remember. I'm also the kind of person, I don't normally think, I normally always think forward, try to think what's going to happen and stay in the future, but I'll do my best to, <laughs> to go back a bit. Um, Rio was, uh, yeah, it was four years ago, and um, all in was 10 by then. He was selected to go to the European Championship the year before, but I I didn't go because I wanted to save him a little bit to have him in really good shape for the for the Olympics. And he was just in in a great shape, you know, he was ten years old, super fresh and I knew I had a really good horse um when I was going over there. And he jumped so well, didn't he, with the double clear in the final jump gets just getting pipped by Nick Skelton. Um, is, you know, being at Rio at the Olympics in 2016, like you said, how was the competition there? Was it as, as big a level as you've seen or was, how, how did it differ? No, yeah, it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was a fantastic show, I think. Fantastic show. Uh, the course designing was, was really, really good. And I actually can't complain about anything. Anything else that I was a bit too slow in the jump off. That's... Uh, <laughs> You know, I was really, really happy for my silver medal, but I was also a little bit annoyed that, uh, you know, it was just a small step up. Um, but as I said, Olin was 10 by then. I had been taking it fairly slow with him and just preparing him for the Olympic Games. And normally at the Olympic Games, there's not like, I think we were six or seven in the jump off. Normally at the Olympic Games, it's one, two or three at the in the jump mm-hmm. off. So, um it was a quicker jump off than um, than uh, it has been the the previous Olympics. Um, so, and by that time we were not we were not as quick as we were like later on in the career. We were not we didn't have that experience in jump offs. 
So, um, you know, probably if it would have been a year after or two years after, we would have given Nick a, a bit of a more, mm-hmm. more competition for the gold medal. Now he, now we were just too slow to take it. And going into the Olympic Games, how do you prepare for such an amazing and big occasion? Well, that's the thing. I think, uh, you know, you have to have a good horse. That's, uh, that's the number one thing, uh, of course, because if you don't have that, a uh, good horse in really good shape, that's, the, that's, that's really, really important. Um, and on top of that, I think also experience is, is quite um, useful when you go to uh, Olympic Games or big championships because you go there, like normally if you go on a show, you go on your own and you have two or three horses you ride, you, you're, you're busy all the time, but now things are different earlier than you would normally show. Uh, you're, you're with the team all the time. The press is asking you, you know, how do you think it's going to go? It's, a, it's so much more pressure on you on a, on a championship than if you go on a, on a normal show. So I think... I think in that case, I think experience is, is quite useful if you go to a championship. That you're, you, know, uh, you know what to expect and then you can prepare yourself for it. So whilst we're on the topic of championships, let's move on quickly to talk about the Europeans. Obviously, the year after the Olympics in Rio, you won that gold medal in your home country. How was that winning European gold? Uh, it was great. You know, it's not... It's not so often you get a championship in your own country. And um, it was the same there also. I knew I had a really good horse and, uh, in, in all-in. And um, at the same and, – and I knew I could win and I really, really wanted to win. And um, at the same time, I also know how difficult it is to win or how easy something – you know, a small thing can happen. Um, and then one pole – you knock one pole down and then um, – one too many, and then and then then you won't win. So it's it's. Um, I was really, how should I say, grateful that I that I was able to win at the championship on home ground because I know how difficult it is, and uh, and and I had the luck on my side. Like you always have to to be able to win uh, win a championship. You have to have you know be well prepared, do as well as you can, but you have to have the luck on your side also. And, you know, like you said before, your silver medal in Rio, you're just behind Nick, whereas you got over the hump, you got your first championship individual gold medal. How was that, you know, just coming from just behind the year before and then going straight to the top? Uh, like I said, uh, I, I was super, super happy with, uh, with my silver from, from Rio, but I was a little bit annoyed that it was a silver and not gold. Like you have to be if you're, you know, that's that's how you have to see it. If you're close, you have to, you have to. Um, if you're not annoyed that you didn't win, I mean, then then you're, then you're not really in the competition. So I was a bit annoyed, and I made sure I wouldn't be too slow uh, at the European Championship um, in Gothenburg. So during that year, I trained quite a bit on the, you know, to get the speed up, to be quicker, and I um, I had a plan to try to be. You know, maybe not to win the first day at the European Championship, but to be like a little bit depending on the other riders, other top riders, how quick they were riding. You say you spent a lot of time training to get yourself quicker at home. How? What did you do to, you know, achieve that? Um, well, first of all, I, I I just decided that I would I, I wanted to you know I wanted to be quicker because that's a to be quicker. It's a, it's the main thing is in the head of the rider that you really want to try to push yourself to be a bit quicker. And then um, I just um, had as a goal to, you know, not be happy to be a slow fifth place. I'd rather to be, had the fastest time and one down than the fifth. So I was working a bit like that and also watching a lot of videos on other good riders that I think are really quick and ride well and just see how they are riding quick and, and my conclusion is that everybody rides differently. You know, they have their own way, their own style of riding. Um, so you just have to find your, your own way. But one thing is um, for sure that the shortest, uh, normally the shortest way is the quickest way. And then counting strides is 
of course important, but not so important because every horse has different length of stride and one stride take different amount of time for different horses. So you just have to, if you just think about it, analyze, and then I was training a little bit, little bit at home, not like putting up a, a course and try to ride it as fast as possible, but breaking it down, like <clears throat> trying to teach the horses to jump on angles, try the horses to teach them to um, not always have a straight line when I jump fences at home, like try to jump out of the corner or something like that and turn afterwards and also try to ride in different kind of speed to have control also in a, in a, in a, in a bigger, bigger stride all these things together and i also made sure like all all the nations cups coming up to the european championship i wanted to be last to go in the team um just so i knew that i would be comfortable with it i would have it in my my system in my routine to be last to go in the team and i also knew that on the european championship it would give me the benefit to have seen the other riders go before me so i knew how quick i had to go to be like Top five. Now, in the end, in the end, it turned out that I won the first day, uh, which was even better. But it wasn't really my. Um, and I also the last show before, before um, Gothenburg, I did exactly the same. I did a speed competition the first day, and then I did a, a normal class in the Grand Prix just to f you know feel how how Orlean was coping because normally with the Grand Prix horses, you just warm up, you do the Grand Prix and then the jump off. But at championships, it's the other way around. You do the speed class first and then you do these clear rounds. So I did that also just to prepare and feel how he was the day after he had done this um, speed class. So whilst we're on the topic of championships, you know, we discussed Rio, we discussed Gothenburg, the European championships, and both of those individual medals you won on the horse H&M All-In. So how did you go about finding him? I bought him when he was um, seven years old from um, Ludovic Paris stable. It was um, Charlotte Söderström, um, uh, horse owner of mine that I had for many years. Um, she bought him and... Uh, we just, you know, I bought a lot of good horses from Ludo, and uh, this time we were extremely, extremely lucky. So we've mentioned H and M all in, but having a look at your career, you've had so many other horses that have brought you success. The likes of Hansen and uh, Christian K as well. Of course, the horse that you took to the World Equestrian Games in 2018. How do you manage to get such a strong group of horses around you? Oh, I, I, you only see the good ones. I had quite a few that they didn't make it out also. <laughs> but, uh, but like you say, I've been really lucky with these horses. They were fantastic, or they are fantastic horses. And uh, um, I had really good owners. That's a good start. Um, it's very, very important. I mean, it's one thing to find a horse, build them up, but then it's, uh, the next thing is to be able to keep the horses in your stable because... Horses like this, um, you know, the year before uh, Olympics or something like this, they are, uh, many people want to buy them. And then I've been very grateful for my owners that they have kept the horses for me. And to find the horses, it's, uh, you know, in the beginning of my career, I, I spent like 80% or 90% on training, you know, myself, how to ride and this and that, and 10% looking for horses. And now I shouldn't say it's the other way around because, you know, I still train a lot and ride a lot, but I spend a lot of time, you know, just watching for horses I find interesting. And, and the funny thing with it is, like, you can find them anywhere, actually, like uh, Hanson and Christian K and Catch Me Not. They are, they are, I found those horses not far away from my stable here. And, and Orlin came from Belgium. And, you know, you can find a good horse anywhere, really, if you're just looking. That's great advice. And something I want to pick up a, uh, a bit about is you mentioned earlier about your training at home, about, you know, the speed up, which for me, I found really interesting as a keen advocate of, um, I love a good second place <laughs> and to try. So hopefully I'm going to be able to take a bit of that and push myself to go a bit quicker. But um, I just want to know a little bit about your general philosophy of, training your horses at home which i find super interesting yeah it's interesting yeah 
it depends. It all depends on, 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 you know, it depends on what level the horse are in. If it's, uh, let's say, all in, if he's competing, you know, every third week or any of my other Grand Prix horses, um, then I don't really, I, just, I don't train them so hard at home because if they compete every second, every third week, that's enough, I think, to keep them, you know, jumping fit. Uh, but I have a, I have a good facility here. I live on top of a hill. So, okay, even if I say I don't keep them so fit, it's like even though they go out hacking at my place, they're actually, they have to work because it's up and down all the time. And I also have a track in the forest. So even if we go out hacking, um, they trot a little bit on that track and canter a little bit. It's not, it's not a hard work, but it's, you know, makes them strong. And that I have to think about when I get new horses to my place, I have to take it really carefully in the beginning because if they're not used to, uh, to these hills, you know, they, they really uh, get, um, get tired in the beginning. So, and, and jumping wise, you know, if the horses are, are, are showing on a regular basis, like every second or third week, I hardly jump at home at all. I hardly jump anything at all at home. I do um, flat work, like, um, you know, schooling I do, because I think that's a very important thing to keep the horses straight and get them elastic and, you know, teach them to carry the body in, the, in, in a good way. And I have also one guy coming and doing this double lunch once a week. So when I'm away at show, he double lunches the horses uh, I have home. So I know they get one one of these things um, while I'm away and then I come home. Normally, I'm on, only home Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I ride them three days and I'm off with some other horses to a show. And looking back at your career, you didn't seem to start in pure show jumping. Obviously, eventing was the primary focus in the early days with you competing at the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. How was that experience in the world of eventing? Uh, I, I really enjoyed eventing, I must say. I had some great years there. and You know, uh, it was nice. We were riding on these thoroughbred horses and uh, it, was, it was really nice. I was working with Mark Todd for a few years and I learned a lot from him. Uh, so I have only great, good memories. Um, the Olympic Games in Barcelona, I was, I was only 20 years old, old by then. And if I said before that experience is important if you go to a championship, for sure, I had nothing of it then, so uh, I wasn't very experienced. Now they did a, did a lot of mistakes actually during that uh, that uh, Olympic. <laughs> and no, it's fascinating because I think you're one of the very, very few riders which have competed in Olympics in eventing and show jumping. But I just like to know a little bit: uh, when did you decide to move your focus towards show jumping? Um, I, I had a I have a five year old older brother uh, called Jens Fredriksson. He's, he's also riding in the Swedish team for show jumping. Uh, he was always doing show jumping and I was, you know, we're really good friends. And um, so I always looked at him a little bit and tried to learn from him, you know, in the show jumping. And then I went, I, I met my, I met Lisa Brett Fredriksson, or she was only called Lisa Brett by then, of course, because we weren't married, but uh, she was also doing show jumping. And then I was thinking maybe I should try to do a bit of show jumping because then I could go to shows together with Lisen and Jens and, you know, and we had a good time together. So I started to do a little bit of show jumping, but I kept doing the eventing. And for, for some years, I did both um, show jumping and eventing. And then uh, one day I got this um, um, question from H&M if I wanted to be their sponsor rider, which was a fantastic opportunity for me. But then they said that, um, you know, if you, if I want to be sponsored by them, I had to choose to only do show jumping. And that was the easy decision for me then to, to try to change to show jumping. And uh, I'm quite happy today. It's a, it's a great sport to be in. How was it for you adapting to the sport of show jumping? Um, well, it wasn't that easy, actually. It wasn't that easy because uh, I was used to riding thoroughbred horses and, uh, um, in the cross country, you ride uh, a bit differently than in show jumping. Uh, in show jumping, you need more control and you need the horses more over the hind legs. And 
know, it's more warm blood horses. So it was a bit of a change um, to do it. And, uh, uh, but mainly it was a bit difficult because when I changed also, when I came into the H&M team, they were also sponsoring Marlene Bayard and she was on a really high level. And they wanted also another rider, you know, um, which was me then to be together with her. I wasn't at all of that level. So the pressure was quite high to develop quickly. So, <clears throat> so I realized that, uh, you know, I had to really develop quickly. And that, that was, uh, that put a lot of pressure on, which was, you know, was good in the end. It was quite hard, hard then to, to, uh, to do it because I had to uh, develop a lot, but, uh, you know, sometimes that's what you need, pressure to develop. And I think that actually, as you say, the pressure was a great thing because in 2004, you were part of that show jumping team in the Athens Olympics that won Team Silver. Very briefly, how did you get to that stage in the early part of your show jumping career? Yeah, yeah it's a good question, actually, because I was really, I got the sponsorship uh, 2000 with H&M and then, uh, I was on a national 150 level, like uh, yeah, and not and, and not very successful either, I must say. And I didn't have any, <laughs> you know, I had nice 140, 145 horses, but nothing special. And I was quite happy with it, also. <laughs> so, uh, but then of course things changed with his sponsor contract, and I was lucky at that time. I came across a horse called uh, Magic Benson, also not far away from where I'm living, like um, an hour away was a friend of mine who had it and he got injured and I got the ride the, the ride on it and it sh- turned out that that horse had an amazing amount of scope um, so um, all of a sudden I could start doing some 160 classes and he went quite well actually and then I was selected for the Olympic Games in Athens but uh, I also had these memories from my Olympic Games 1992 in, in Barcelona when I was 20 and I realized I made so many mistakes at that Olympic Games so I really had to make a good plan now for the Olympic Games in Athens to be better prepared so you know I worked actually really hard just to prepare myself to be really you know and try to avoid the mistakes I, I made before and also my brother um, he was also a you know, experienced show jumping rider and my wife and so on. So we sort of made a plan together how to do it as good as possible to be as well prepared as possible for the Olympic Games there in Athens. And, you know, that result was fantastic. And I just wanted to know a little bit, um, do you think your time training and eventing has helped in show jumping, whether it be flat work or something along those lines? Yeah, sure. I think a, a lot because um, I think flat work is, is very important in show jumping. It's important for, for many reasons. One reason is to try to keep the horses, um, you know, sound and, uh, and, 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 you know, working well in the body. And uh, doing three-day eventing, you have to do a bit of dressage. So I took a lot of dressage lessons Kira Shirklund and some other good dressage riders and the time I spent with Mark Todd also helped me a lot because he had a great horsemanship and a very natural way of you know training his horses and an uncomplicated way of, of riding and you know that, that was a really valuable time for me to be with Mark Todd. I think it's safe to say then so far that we learned a lot about your career and it's spanned over quite a few years. What is the most important thing that you've learned in that time? <laughs> to never give up. Just keep, keep coming. I mean, <laughs> as a rider, you're going to have moments, everything goes great and you think you're the best in the world. And then you're going to have moments you feel like you're done, you're never ever going to come back. But one thing is for sure, like, you're never going to stay on the top there. Sooner or later, you're going to fall. And if you keep going, you're always, you know, you're always going to come up again. You're going to find new horses. And if you just keep working forward, I think that's the, that's the important thing to remember. Something that really interests me is no matter what show in the world you see you walk in the course, there's always a piece of paper in your hand. Could you tell us more about that? 
Well, I, I just do that because, um, you know, it's a good way for me to remember um, how many strides to ride in between the, each fence and how many meters it is. And then I also, um, when I walk the course, I'm, I try to be really focused. I write it down and then I know uh, I have it. I put it in my chest pocket. I always have it there, same place. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes I take it up uh, and sometimes I don't, but I, I'd read, I, you know, if I, you know, when I finish walking the course, I memorize uh, the course, see myself ride it two or three times. So I really get it, you know, from my head into my chest. And then, and then I leave it. And I go and warm up the horse or maybe, you know, do something else. And then... <clears throat> <clears throat> and then when I have uh, like three horses to go in front of me I sit down then my groom um, will put the saddle forward and then I go through the course one more time visualize it and then if I, for some reason I think like oh how was it now in between five and six was it six or seven strides how was it then I don't have to ask somebody else because if you ask somebody else they will give you a totally different answer because, you know, maybe they sit on a, <laughs> on a horse with a huge stride and you sit on a horse with a small stride or, you know, it's, you know, I don't want to, you know, I, I want to have the answer myself. But then I know I have the answer I have in my chest pocket because I made the decision myself. So that gives me a bit of, um, you know, I can just relax because I know I have everything under control. And to me, it sounds like you have a very organized mindset. Do you think that's something that really helps you? <laughs> I don't, actually. I don't. I don't. I, don't. I totally, <laughs> totally unorganized normally. Oh, so. That makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> actually, that's, that's the reason why I start doing these things, because I, I know I'm really unorganized. And I know if you go to a championship or something like that, it's not a good thing to be unorganized. You really have to work with it, you know. That's what I said, to be well prepared. Try to find your weakness and then try to work on it to be well prepared. And this thing with the note, like take notes, that's just one small part of all the things I worked with to be more organized. At the moment, you're currently world number six. So it's safe to say that you really are at the top of the sport. Have you made any sacrifices to get there? No, I wouldn't say sacrifices because, uh, you know, I really do what I love to do and I'm really you know, happy to be able to uh, work with with this. Um, what I did is, like, before for my sponsorship with H&M, I was doing um, a lot of everything, like, small stuff. I was, like, you know, um, taking my own hay and I was driving the tractor and all these things, which I really enjoy. Um, but I realized, like, if you really want to um, try to be as good as you can, you have to um, have priorities and um, so I tried to organize it in that way so I didn't have to do these things I tried to you know earn more money so I could employ some people to do it which and that helped a lot so now I have okay now everything is different with corona now I'm back on the tractor again <laughs> but, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> cutting the grass and all this and I really enjoy it I must say but but if you want to be successful and like on top of the sport you have to focus on that. Like a lot of the time you're awake, you have to think about that, how to be better and how to have the horses feeling better. And, you know, all these details like shoeing and feeding and transporting, training, you know, all these details you have to, it takes time. So you can't have like your mind somewhere else and try to just do it a couple of hours a day. You know, it won't be enough. And looking at the early days of your career, tell us how you started out riding. Uh, like I said before, I have a brother that's five years older than me, Jens. Uh, we were always into horses. We had our ponies and, you know, just playing around. Um, we always spent a lot of time in the saddle. Not so serious in the beginning, but we were always riding a lot. And um, my father is a, he's a veterinarian and he's really into horses. So, of course, he... You know, he also motivated us in a, in a nice way, no, no pressure, but uh, we felt that it was something um, worth doing and he was happy when it was going well. And, you know, that's how it started. And did you always want to do show jumping when you were younger or was it eventing more than that or where did you think? 
no, I, I actually I don't. That I, I can't remember. I really saw myself doing any any uh, sport like that when I was younger. I was just you know playing around, like to train my horses, and I was you know I, I had ponies. I always taught them to lay down and you know doing things like that, just playing around. And then when I was I think 13 or 14, I got uh, my first big horse. It was a three-year-old, three-year-old uh, thoroughbred from the racetrack. And I started to ride her. And then at that time, um, uh, Frederick Jönsson, he was um, in the same class as me in school. And his father was an event rider. So he, the, his father started to train us. And then that's how it, we came into three-day eventing. And which was your first big win? I've been, I won the European Championship as a junior. Um, that would be my first big win. Was that in eventing in, or show I, jumping? In eventing. I didn't do any show jumping until I was, yeah. you know, until 2004. And in show jumping? Uh, in show jumping, my first big win would have been in Modena. In, in Italy, 2004, just before the Olympic Games. Fantastic. And obviously, since then, you've had many Grand Prix wins. If you had to, let's say, pick one that was your favourite, which would it be? Uh, I think that would have been uh, uh, last year. Uh, of course, it would have been the European Championship in Gothenburg. That was, uh, mm. But always to win at home, I think it's fantastic, you know, like I, when I won last last year in Stockholm in Falsterbo was also, you know, because we had such a great, uh, we such a great horse country and you know great audience and atmosphere is always great on Swedish shows and then you're really happy if you can if you can contribute to that to make it even better. You mentioned there that show jumping is a huge sport in Sweden and it really is very much so compared to us here in Britain. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it is because we have a lot of riding schools in Sweden. Actually, when the army was cutting down, instead of selling all the horses, they um, gave them to riding schools uh, for free so people could come and ride. Uh, and in case of war, they could bring them back. And I think that started up a lot of riding schools and a lot of people started uh, to ride on riding schools. And now the children of these people are coming to the riding schools and I think that's a it's 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 a very important thing for for um, for uh, the big interest is in interest in show jumping we have in Sweden. That's really interesting because I had no idea about that, and it's it's great to see the sport coming from the ground up by getting the most people in as possible. I think that's a brilliant way to increase the sport's popularity, but competing in Britain a few times. Is there any ways you think that Britain could catch up with that? I, 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 think, I think Britain is fantastic. I love to come to England and compete. And I'm, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you have to catch up. I think you're <laughs> well, well, uh, well up. Um, and um, I think it's, you know, we've been really fortunate uh, for, the, for the last couple of years that we had some really good riders that had some good horses at the same time. Because you can have you can have some top top riders, and for some years they don't have a top horse, and then some other horse. Like we had some really good riders with some really good horses at the same time, and that's what you need to create a really strong team. So in that sense, uh, you know we've been, you know, say lucky because it's a lot of people put a lot of effort in, and we have great horse owners, and <clears throat> Shifty Kips are great, and you know our federation and many people are working really hard but you also have to have a bit of luck to have everything come together at the same time to be strong uh, that's what you need to be able to take medals at championships and i like england you have some fantastic riders and if all those riders had the best horse of their career right now you would have the best team in the world <laughs> that's that is a great uh, perspective to have because always you know the grass is greener on the other side and there's riders in britain that think you know 
especially as the popularity and the if the sport is is struggling but it's 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 great to hear that someone from as your stature from a different country where we all look up to that thinks that we're no we're doing all right so i don't know about you sam it makes me feel a bit better <laughs> definitely i totally agree <laughs> you're doing <laughs> and but sticking with a bit of sweden and i haven't actually uh been there to see it but my mum's competed there a lot and uh she's always gone to Folsterbo and they've always done rabbit jumping which to me looks incredible and they usually do like you know a team format with the nation's cup riders of the uh, have you tried your hand in in that? no i haven't i haven't so far i've seen it it looks it looks amazing i i, I can't wait to find a horse to be able to jump like a rabbit it would be great <laughs> <laughs> about five times their height it's, it is quite incredible it is, it's, it is. I don't, have you seen it sam it is really no i've never seen it before yeah it's it's a thing in sweden and they they do quite a bit and they have competitions and that you sort of like walk around behind the rabbit and it just goes and jumps like comparatively to their size pretty big fences yeah yeah, yeah i've seen i've seen it actually yeah <laughs> Brilliant. But now we want to get to know you a little bit better. So the first of those questions to do that is, could you tell us something the normal person wouldn't know about you? Well, they probably wouldn't know because they didn't want them to know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, but I think, like you said, like a normal person would probably think I'm really organized because I have this piece of paper and I have my routines. But, you know, I'm I'm not a very organized person. I'm quite bohemian, and and uh, that's that's probably one of those things that people think uh, that I am, but I'm not. And how do you like to spend your time away from horses? Um, when the shows are on every weekend, I will the home at home with my the time my free time with my family at home. Um, um so <laughs> everything is a, everything is a bit like uh at corona and then before corona like like now i'm in mm. with my family all the time it's 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 great now i i enjoy going out seeing friends and <clears throat> i start playing paddle now and and um do some things that you never have time with when um, when you're at shows all the time but but when the show at the shows we're quite social because you know you're with friends all the time we're at shows and you meet each other at the hotel and you talk during the competition. So when I come home, I'm quite happy to spend the time I have at home with my, with, with my kids and my family and train the horses uh, that are going to the next show. So we've mentioned all the successes that you've had, but my favourite question to ask our guests is, can you tell me of any embarrassing moments that you've had in the ring? <laughs> A lot probably, but... You know, I, I try not to, um, you know, I try not to take it too hard. And, you know, if you want to um, be good in the ring and do well, you also have to be prepared that you do terrible things in the ring. And, and it's okay. You know what I mean? So, you know, people get really upset if they do a mistake and so on. But, you know, that's, that's what happens. I mean, you know what I mean? You're, you cannot be afraid of failure because you know that's a really bad thing so um no i don't i try not to think of too much about it (laughs) and what do you think you'd be doing if you never went into horses oh good question i've been riding since i was five so uh you know i do a bit of painting also i don't know if i would be good enough to uh, make a living out of it but uh you know i quite enjoy painting um like like uh, not uh, house walls, but uh, like on on paper. <laughs> and um, you know, I like planting trees. I really enjoy that. Um, yeah, I don't know, something like that but, probably. But it was always show jumping or horses in general. Yeah, normally, normally, that's that's my that's my main thing. And for our final question, is there any Grand Prix that you haven't won already that you would like to win the most? Arkin and Calgary. Uh, yeah. Out of those two, Arkin. which one? Arkin. Arkin. No, that's, that's brilliant. I'd just like to say thank you so much for joining us, Pedder. It's been a pleasure. And 
it's great to hear from you. And we hope that shows get started soon and we can see you back out again. Yeah, me too. Thank you. It was great talking to you too. Once again, thank you so much to Peder Fredriksson for coming on the podcast. It was so fascinating to hear his views. You know, Swedish rider, which is our first European rider to come on the podcast. Don't know about you, Sam, but his views on the sport and how he's come up through the eventing routes to reach the pinnacle of the sport, I found extremely interesting. So did I. And I thought it was really interesting the way that he spoke about his horses and how he's found them all. But now let's move to part two with Hickstead show director Lizzie Bunn. Well, now we come to part two of the podcast and joining us this week is Hickstead show director Lizzie Bunn. Of course, 2020 marks the 60th anniversary of the All England Jumping Course. Lizzie, thank you for joining us. Hi, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us, Lizzie. And, you know, recently, like you say, it's been the 60th birthday at Hickstead. And how proud are you that the show has been so successful for so many years? Well, obviously, I'm, I'm very proud of what my father created 60 years ago. Um, you know, he, back in the 50s and 60s, he, he was riding on the British team and he recognised the need for a permanent showground and facilities in Britain um, that could match those found abroad and, and in the States. So he bought Hickstead Place, which became his home, and some of the land the showground sits on now in 1959. And then... You know, and he chose it mainly because of it, of its um, road links. We're not we're not far from Brighton, and not really that far from London either. Close to Gatwick, and uh, also it was important he, he that we had a river so uh, that he could irrigate. So he, he sort of picked the site, and then um, you know that first winter, he and my my mum Sue they set about creating a showground. Uh, it was pretty basic back then. It was post and rope around the arenas a, a caravan for an office um but from the word go he, he still had the audacity to name it the all england jumping course you know styled on, <laughs> styled on the all england lawn tennis club at wimbledon um but by the following year you know he, he was hosting the very first british jumping derby and if my memory serves me right i think a, a junior european championships that uh, is in 61 you know, obviously went on. We we went on to host, um, I think it's seven Europeans and two World Championships after that. But you know, very proud of what what we've achieved over the years. I think it's definitely impressive, as you say there. But in those sort of sixty years and the memories that you have personally of the show, what would be your favourite? Oh my goodness, there've been so many, but I, I think several derbies stand out for me. Um, Buddy Bun was our homebred horse, uh, winning with John Whitaker. That was a fantastic day. It was very special. Um, I think Nelson Pessoa, when he became the oldest winner at the age of 60, you know, he was a great, or is a great family friend. And, and seeing Dad stood there in floods of tears after he won, that was, that was very moving. He was a very good friend of his. Um, and then I suppose um, when William Funnell, and Mondrian won back in 2009. Dad had just died the week before the show and it had been a really tough week for, for all of us. We're having to continue to run the show and dealing with literally hundreds of people commiserating with us and, and also we, having to organise his funeral, which was the Monday directly after the show. Uh, so it, it, it was rather poignant and it seemed right that it was one of my closest friends that, that won it that, that year. And he said, you know, dad was sort of sat on his shoulders going around. Um, you know, there'd been many great derbies. Um, but aside from those, I think uh, the European Championships in 99, uh, that was a huge sort of personal triumph. I'd I, I just given birth to my second daughter, actually, when we found out that we were going to host the Europeans. It was, it was supposed to be in Harrogate and they, they couldn't run it. And so... Not, you know, normally you have a few years' notice, and we had like eight months. So maternity leave <laughs> went out the window, and, and after a lot of late nights in the office, um, somehow we managed to pull off a very successful event. Uh, and, and an added bonus, actually, that year, Chloe won the speed derby, which was another um, memorable moment for us. I think that's the great thing about Hickson is you have, 
there's so much you know history and the events there which are you know so crucial to the show jumping calendar and i know for myself watching my mum especially jump there and she won the derby in 2011 that was amazing for me just watching that you know that triumph and the emotion that comes out at the derby is 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 just more than any normal class whether it be one of you know the biggest classes in the world and I know Derby's up there with that. It's just it just seems to mean more. But what do you think? You know, makes it so special. Well, I think you know, Dad had enormous flair uh, as well as originality, and and he really recognised the importance of the spectator, as well as obviously offering a new challenge to competitors. But I'm sure when he you know he first designed the Derby course with Pam Carruthers. 60 years ago he he had he would have had no idea that you know he'd still be jumping the same course today um and you know it's changed very little since its inception and so i think riders also they can compare themselves to winners from the past you know and it's it's, it's also them up, up against the course um you know i love derby day on su- on the sunday morning when everyone's walking the course the band's playing you know there's a real buzz or an air of excitement and and also, I think with the public, um, I introduced a, the, the public course walk uh, many years ago now. But I think it really helps for the spectators to walk uh, up uh, up to the fences beforehand. So, you know, they, they, they can walk around. You get to fence two early on in the course and you stand in the middle of that oxer and you spread your arms out and, and you can't reach reach the poles. I think it then when they're they're watching it, they really appreciate what they're jumping, how wide everything, how big every how big the fences are, and all the way around they're then clapping individual efforts. So like they jump the double of ditches, they clear through the over, up and over the bank or through the dike, and, and you know they get through the dike and the, the crowd goes crazy, and and every fence after that it's ooing and ahhing, and you know the, it, it there's real. Uh, spectator almost participation I think and uh, you know, it's a bit like the Grand National every rider wants to wants to be added to the Derby Roll of Honour I think that's a really good point to make and looking back at that Derby Roll of Honour there has been so many incredible horse and rider partnerships in the 60 year history but if you had to single it down to one Derby horse that you would say was the best which horse would you choose? Well, the the obvious one is Boomerang, um, you know, for his four consecutive wins at the end of the 70s. Um, and I don't think I can really dispute that. I remember as a teenager sitting in, in the members grandstand with a group of friends and, and watching Eddie win for the fourth time um, in the mud. I mean, it was it was a gruelling year that year. Um, but then if you look at the clear rounds jumped, you know, Boomerang only jumped it clear twice only, I say. <laughs> Although I think the ground was was very much against him in those years. Um, you know, I'm, as I say, the fourth year, I know for a fact it was muddy and probably one of the other years it was too. Whereas, you know, you could look, we have three other combinations. Um, Apollo and Nick Skelton, Kilbaha with John Leddingham and uh, the mighty Stroller and Mary Mould. They all jumped three clear rounds apiece. So, you know, we've had some great Derby Derby horses and winners over the years. But I think if I had to say one, it would probably have to be Boomerang. I think that's, you know, I, when I asked thought the question, I thought that was definitely going to be the one. But it was so something that, you know, is not commonly known, is it? The, he only jumped two clears of the four, mm. which, um, which, and like you said, like Stroller, which I didn't know had jumped three he, clears. He jumped three but clears and only won it once. That's incredible. That's incredible. And there's it because it's that's really strange because obviously there's plenty of times when it's won with a fence down, yeah. which I think is it's the weird, one of the weirdest classes because you jump around for three down and you're delighted. <laughs> where, 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 you know, you go, oh, get some money here. Whereas there's no other place when that's ever going to happen. So, no. but what about because um, it does take, you know, a special kind of horse to jump at Hickstead. It's, it's different now to, than the modern show jumping course. It's kept the prestige and the old style and it's you know, more big filled out fences. Do you, what do you think about that in the sense of the, how the rest of 
of show jumping has changed and you've managed to keep it to its roots and to keep it special yeah, i mean i mean we are traditional we 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 like to um you know we're very aware of our history but we have over the years moved with the times a lot of the fence material now is much lighter than it ever used to be you know we have split gates now um the dark i think in the derby we still have the big we still have the big gates but um and, and we still have obviously the big water which is contentious um mm. and you know there's plans afoot that we might slightly narrow the face of it not the width of it but the, as you approach it we tried it at the, the september show last year um but we we still want to keep it as a big water for the derby um so that you know the course remains unchanged uh, but we have had to move with the times and um but but still keep an element of hickstead Definitely. And could you expand a little bit on the water? Unfortunately, I've tried to do it <laughs> once and taken, taken a slight tumble. Um, my first appearance on uh, live TV, which was, <laughs> you know, a shame. We're clear up to the 10th the fence, I think it was, with two left. And yeah, old Percy wasn't overly keen in it. But um, just, just tell us a little bit about how, you know, how it might change I, I didn't know that this was a I, I didn't know that that might happen well we've just been trialing it because quite a few of the riders have we, we you know is actually narrower across it than it than it used to be we 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 brought it in by four inches it's now four four meters um and we made it much shallower. I mean, I remember some riders having right pearlers there when horses did go in the <laughs> middle of it. They would really properly turn over. Whereas now, I mean, yeah, we have fallers and, and whatever, but it's pretty safe. We're actually going to be doing a bit more work on it um, later this, now that we're not having shows. We're, we're going to be sort of shaving a little bit off either side uh, so that it's got a little bit less of a lip possibly make it even shallower but that the, what some of the riders are now thinking that the horses are sort of overawed by such an expanse of water as they approach mm. it and you, you think about a lot of waters that are jumped even in nations cups around the world they they're they're not as wide that you know that the front of it isn't as wide so we we mm. as i say we trialed it and we put um we sort of blocked off the edges and covered it in a, an astroturf um, and it and it you know it, it did seem to jump better so there is a, a chance that we might I don't think we're doing anything permanent but we may we were going to trial, trial it again this year um, in some of the bigger classes and see how it went and would that then be reversible for yes, the and then you just lift those it... out it's, it's literally Perfect. like a That's, platform that you yeah. put in that it would take the weight of a horse Oh, that that's that's really interesting. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how, you know, moving on through the years. And I think a, a big part was when you went through, you know, the ground system. Could you tell us a little bit about that? But what the, the in the main ring? Yeah. Um, you're talking to the wrong person here. It's, it, 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 <laughs> it, uh, maybe I should pass the phone to Edward for this bit. Hold on one second. Hello, <laughs> oh, boys. Um, so, uh, Hello, we, Edward. We... we, we we went Hi, to a company called the STRI, which is the Sports Turf Research Institute, um, having had pressure put on us by the FEI and by riders. And we basically, they, they'd done the same in Dublin the year before. And we dug out 10 to 12 inches, just took it out, just went in with bulldozers and, and big diggers and dug out. We kept the topsoil um, to one side, took out, I don't know, four or five inches of clay, uh, we then imported 2,000 tonnes of gravel. Uh, so we cut some drains and then we put a gravel, they call it a gravel raft. So everywhere under the ring, there is four to five inches of gravel. Um, we then put on a membrane, a bit more sand, and then we, we reintroduced the topsoil, the best of the topsoil back on to bring it up to the level it should be. Uh, and then incorporated into that 2,900 tonnes of sand. And mix that into the mix that into the topsoil, so it was it became a very sandy, sandy surface, um, uh, and then grass seeded it. So basically, 
there's a, a drain every 10 inches. From wherever you are in the ring, there's a, there's a drain 10 inches below your feet. So it's, <laughs> it's very similar to the construction they use on all weather services, you know, dressage arenas and, and menages, where you have that stone layer underneath that takes the drainage. Well, exactly the same thing happens here now. It, it's, it's, so we call it, a, it's nearly an all weather arena, but it's got grass growing on the top. Well, it, it is just fantastic ground now. It's just carpet when you walk on it, and you look, the horses always look like they're gliding. And to me, it's just my favourite ring to jump in. It's just so nice. Everything is just always, you know, they cut in yeah. perfectly. Everything. I don't know about you, Sam, but it's, it's something to me. It's just special and above mo- any other ring that I've jumped in. I totally agree. I think it has an amazing feel to it. And as Edward touched on there, it really is like walking on a surface with grass. Can I just add in at that point that we had to sell Dad's wine cellar to pay for the cost of putting it? (laughs) (laughs) £600,000 worth it cost. (laughs) Whoa. What we'd like to know, seeing as we've got Edward with us, who is the expert on grass maintenance, how much work goes into maintaining it? I can answer this one. Lots. (laughs) Lots. <laughs> I say the main <laughs> ring is really Edward and William's domain, but it is, it's constantly being cared for. It, you know, it's mown three times a week. It's fertilised every month. It's watered whenever, you know, daily sometimes. And then it's regularly decompacted with a spiky machine. I don't know what they're called. I have a, a verti-drainer. <laughs> oh, we've got a, we have three, actually. A verti-drainer, a slitter and an earthquaker. And then um, every autumn it's scarified because it, you know, because it's cut mown so often, it, it ends up getting um, a sort of a, a thatch layer. So it's a bit like a, a drain pipe. It, you've got a perfectly good drain. You lay a, lo- a load of leaves on it uh, and you get the water can't get away you you take those leaves off and of course it it flows away perfectly so we have to scarify it to take that thatch out so that the drainage remains um constant and then it's it's reseeded in the autumn and then top dressed with sand in the spring so basically all year round it's constant maintenance so we've mentioned the maintenance of the arena but every year when we come to hickstead Things change and things keep improving. How do you manage to keep that, that every year there's new developments going on? Um, well, you know, since Dad died 11 years ago nearly now, you know, we have invested a huge amount of money on improvements. Um, aside from, obviously, the makeover of the main ring, we, we've, we've made ring four and more recently ring three into all weather arenas. We've added horse walks, new grandstands and, you know, generally try to modernise the showground. Um, and a new thing that we did last winter, we, you know, the event side of the business is another area that we've tried to improve over the years. You know, we've ha- held Christmas parties and the riders ball and, and weddings for many years. But, you know, we recently renovated the Beethoven suite and put in a new entrance with new toilets and disabled facilities and lifts, you know, so that we can attract more corporate bookings. Um, you know, we, we've got a keep on coming up with ways to diversify and utilize the showground all year round um to you know pay the bills i mean i I think i can say with some confidence that dad would be extremely proud of how we as a family have continued his legacy though i would say that's definitely true and the one thing about the development that interests me most is the new development of the schooling facilities that you have tell us a little more about that we didn't want to just run lots of regular shows show jumping shows because we wanted to make sure that our main shows remained um special uh so we felt that we needed to go into different areas different markets so uh we thought that we would make uh you know and so that the, the the as again that the facilities are bringing money all year round that we would put in we we put in a big new water complex beyond ring four um and we linked when we did ring three uh we linked we did a link so that you can ride from three to four to the water complex um and then we built and brought in um a load of cross-country fences starting well some of them start at 60 centimeters now uh up to sort of 110 uh so that people can come in and 
at the minute we're only allowing six in, but normally it's eight an hour. Um, and, you know, and through the winter it was busy. You know, it's, it's another income stream that, that's going to prove vital to the longevity of the showground, I think. Definitely. And it's really great how you guys have kept on going and, you know, diversifying everything. But we'll take it back a little bit to your main shows. And this year, although being your 60th birthday, it has been devastating for so many reasons all around the world. But obviously having to cancel your two big shows must have been really gutting. Oh, it was. Yes. Um, I've been in this job for uh, 33 years now. And it is the first time that I've had to cancel a show. Um, unfortunately, we had no choice. Uh, but, we, you know, we've received a lot of support from our stakeholders. You know, our sponsors have been really supportive, as have a lot of the trade stand holders. Um, you know, we, we just all got to stick together and ride, this, ride out this storm and, and hope we can come back stronger next year. Through the 60-year history of Pickstead, Lizzie, what do you think has changed the most? Well, the, re- the showground itself is unrecognisable from the early days. You know, the whole site has grown enormously. Uh, at the end of the 60s, early 70s, um, Dad bought extra land because originally it was just the main ring and ring two. Um, and then he bought the farm, actually, where I live, uh, at the back of the showground um, with the land that came with that. So where rings three, four, five, six are and the polo, um, he added that in. And then about I suppose it was 15 years ago, he purchased some extra fields north of the river. Um, so we now, have, you know, spe- spread into four different fields for stabling and lorry parking. Um, so the actual site now is, is, is huge. But, but for me, I think the biggest change is to the programme, to the, the schedule of events. You know, initially it was all about show jumping, but now showing is a huge part of the show, particularly at the Royal International. Um, we have driving, polo in the winter, arena eventing, you name it, you know, and over the week of the Royal International, we, we have over three and a half thousand competitors. So it's, you know, it, it's, I think that side of it. Um, and, you know, and, and Dad, he was known as the master of Hickstead, but he was also a, a master of invention. Um, he was he was a real horseman. He was master of the Mid-Surrey Drag for many years, and, and he loved riding across country which is why he came up with the idea of a cross-country race. Um, back in the 70s, it was, it, it was run over the Easter weekend and he, he rode in every year and there were teams from... I, th- I don't know whether your father didn't even do it. Did Fletch do it one year? I don't know. But they, 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 there was teams of show jumpers, there was teams of eventers, there were military, there were journalists, there were all sorts, jockeys. Um, and from that, obviously, the popular sport of team chasing was born so dad invented invented team chasing and then if you, you know if you fast forward a couple of decades um together with paul schockmuller and robert lemure he he also created the eventing grand prix which was a, a forerunner to arena eventing as we know it now so he was always looking for new ways to entertain the crowd and that's what i was saying he, he always had spe- the spectator in mind when when he was bringing in new ideas and he was he wanted to entertain that, that's that's fantastic how everything's gone on. I can probably answer your question to whether my dad did it. It depended if there was prize money at the end. If it was, probably <laughs> being. <laughs> or I would I be anyway. I know whether he did it or not. I know that Ted Edgar did it. Um, I know Nick Skelton did it. Bob Ellis, Bob Ellis definitely did it. He won it one year, Bob. He was in the team with... Um, really? I think it was Lionel and... Um, Stephen Hadley was in it, I think, because they, they were the ones that, that took part. But but um, I think, and they all fell at the last fence about one year. I remember that. They all started off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> but uh, anyway, just the last thing. Uh, what are the plans for the rest of the year? Do you think the September show will go ahead? If, well, we're st- still hoping that it will. Um, we're just waiting to see how things pan out over the coming weeks. Um and in the meantime, we're, we're continuing with our cross-country schooling. And, and as of this week, we're offering show jumping arena hard too now in in um, 
the, the polo and actually we're even going to be renting out the main ring to a few select people um but other than that i'm i'm, I'm really looking forward to my first stress-free summer in in uh, 33 years <laughs> <laughs> well i might need to come down and pop over <laughs> yes. the water that's been a lot <laughs> um no, but thank you so much for coming on. I'm sure we could get you on again. There's so much of the history of Hickstead with the jumping, which I'm super fascinated in. But thank you so Pleasure. much for coming on. Hopefully we'll see you at That'd the September be great. show. That would be great. But keep safe. Hope thank, everything's fine. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank Lizzie. you. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Four Course Show Jumping Podcast. Don't forget to check out our Instagram competition, Sponsored by JP Equestrian, where one lucky listener can win a show jumping filler. And to do that, you just need to search the full course show jumping podcast and make sure that you share it with all of your friends so they too can keep up to date with all of our guests.